incompetent agents that you do work deal with from time to time. Like I'll still get phone calls from people and I'm like, I, I really wish, uh, you know, you, you are a little more confident because I, I can tell that you want it, but you're just not all there. So not to be disrespectful to that person, but they just can't grasp some of the very simple concepts. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? You know, I've gone back and forth. And when I was in Italy this summer, I actually had a combination of three things. So it's kind of together like this. This sounds silly, but a dark chocolate with a lemon and a raspberry together in one. I don't think it's a flavor technically, but you hit kind of every palate, sweet, kind of bitter, everything inclusive. So as funny as that sounds, those three together, but if I had, it was exclusive to just one, probably cake batter. Did you, when you were in Italy, did you ask for those three flavors together and they just gave it to you or what did that look like? Oh, we were going to the gelato shop and they say, how many scoops do you want? I'm like, I'm taking three and here's what I want. So it was a very customized uh, order process. I love it. Well, last question then on this is gelato or ice cream? What's your favorite? I didn't really know there's a difference, but I'm going to have to say due to recency bias, most certainly gelato. <laughs> I would agree. Italian gelato is phenomenal and you don't feel awful after it. I don't know if they don't put preservatives in it or what, but like, I don't feel bad. That's true. It. It's you can eat, Yeah, you could eat the pasta there. You can you really carve out there and feel pretty shame, shameless. So um, one of the many reasons as to uh, to attend Italy, if you have the chance to ever in your life. There you go. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah. So I work with Lone Star Capital. Many people know uh, the principal, Rob Beardsley. Of course, you and Chris uh, are some incredible partners that we have. Uh, but yeah, I'm the director of um, business development at the firm. So essentially, I do all of the outreach, or I guess I'd say most of the outreach, uh, relationship building uh, and growing, and attend a bunch of conferences, do a lot of calling, making sure that the capital stack is uh, taken care of for the deals to make sure all of the tranches that our partners have are filled and uh, bringing on new clients and making sure everyone's happy. Well, I, you said a lot of big words there and I want to dig into those. But before we get there, you didn't start in real estate in this role. Take us back to where your real estate journey began. Yeah. So kind of funny and uh, I guess unique to me in some respects. I know a lot of kids grow up wanting maybe uh, to be cliche, an astronaut, a doctor, maybe a baseball player. I came out of birth wanting to sell homes. I don't know why, but it was just kind of my I was possessed. So I was doing that for seven years prior to getting into this world. I would definitely say I kind of stumbled into it um, due to my relationship with Rob Beardsley, as I said, the principal earlier. And, you know, he kind of saw how I was working and I was very you know, curious as to how he was running his business. And fortunately, uh, I happened to be really good friends with uh, a savant. And we kind of talked about what would work, working would look like at some point in the future. And fortunately, uh, we kind of mutually thought, you know, working together would be beneficial for all parties. Uh, so he brought me into to this world. Uh, so went from selling homes for seven years, thought I was gonna do that forever, and then kind of realized the upside in this world, also the compounding nature 
and uh, the compounding effect that this business has, as you know, once you kind of go full cycle on a couple of deals, you know, kind of five to 10 years from now where the firm could be. Uh, and also in five to 10 years from now, the firm will look totally different. So getting in ground floor before we're, you know, the behemoth that we're going to become just made a lot of sense to me. So that was kind of my background going from selling homes for seven years, thought I'd do that forever, and then kind of back stumbled into this and no looking back now. I've never met someone that said ever since I grew up, I wanted to be a real estate agent or sell homes. Like what, what excited you about that? Why, why did you want to get into that space? Yeah, that's a great question. And my mom actually will always joke about this, but she was like, you know, as a kid used to watch ESPN, just sports center. I've always loved football, baseball, you know, basketball, just always was glued to that. And then it was a weird coupling because I would watch that all the time and also I'd watch like HGTV or TLC and would always watch like home flips. So I don't know why my brain was so stimulated by the house flipping process, but it was always just really appealing to me. I always like the numbers aspect, just visually, pers uh, I'm a visual person. So it's looking at home designs and taking something that's a little bit old into something more, you know, latest and greatest uh, was always just really appealing to me. So it was just stimulating. And then, you know, from a financial perspective, I, I don't know why, but as a kid, I always knew I didn't like school, but I wanted to make a lot of money. And as funny as it sounds, like selling homes, well, you can make a, a quite a bit amount of money there. Um, so just the real estate industry itself was appealing to me there. It also just felt very tangible and easy to grasp. Like mentally, I could always picture it. So I think that was also an additional factor as to why I went into the real estate world and also the home selling business. And then as I kind of started to accrue a better network and accrue more knowledge and, and information, I learned that there's, you know, frankly, a, a bigger and better game to play. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's where we see a lot of people go is like they start either fixing and flipping homes, doing something in a single family space and then grow from there. But one question I'm, I'm interested in asking you is, the barrier to entry to become a real estate agent is not very high. So you see a lot of real estate agents out there, but I have struggled to find really good real estate agents. So first question is, were you a good real estate agent? And then the second question is like, what makes a good real estate agent when you're, when you're in that role? Yeah. Well, there is in Arizona, there's like probably 40,000 licensed agents but the average agent does five a year, houses a year, I think, or seven. And I sold 50 last year before switching over. And I kind of closed my shop up in September. So I would definitely say I'm a good agent, but I just want to kind of show not to brag, but to just to show how skewed those numbers are. So most agents don't actually sell anything, but they have their license active for the phantom family member that comes through, but don't use your family member because they're not tapped into actually giving you a good service and negotiating you the best deal possible. Please work with an agent who's actually in the trenches doing it every single day. Um, so I would say it's interesting because to make a good agent, it's very simple. You just have to A, want it, and then B, you have to communicate. And not everyone has the highest level of urgency. So also urgency is another thing as well, especially before. I think a lot of older agents actually really struggled with this, especially I can only speak to the Arizona market recently. But it was an environment where houses would take six months to a year to sell. And then the last three years, I would say particularly after you know August of 2020 is when kind of things normalized and people realized the world wasn't going to end and rates started to plummet. 
you know, sub 2.8% is when the market got really hot and older agents who had been in the business for a while really struggled with it. Um, and just due to the frantic pace of it. So someone who can communicate and is on it and also it really does take a selfless person. Um, you've got to want to sell homes. You've got to want to give up weekends and want to sacrifice your time. And you're kind of working really crazy hours. Your time could be worth 50 cents an hour at times. And then your time could be worth $10,000 an hour because you're managing call it five escrow or 10 escrows. I mean, I remember at one point a couple deals fell out, but I had 12 escrows I was managing at once. And then the next month, you know, you, it's very hard to sustain that. So I only had two deals that closed the next month and then the next month pick up like four, but it can really ebb and flow. So your time is always worth different amounts of monies um, throughout the process. But, you know, just back to what makes a good agent is uh, communicating, texting back, setting up showings, uh, and then being able to, you know, understand the contract. So it really is, it takes you to do a certain amount of deals to actually figure it out. But it's the, the business is not rocket science at all. It's one of the easiest business. And there's, as you said, zero barrier of entry, which is a pro and a con. Um, so, but there are a lot of incompetent agents that you do work deal with from time to time. Like I'll still get phone calls from people and I'm like, I, I really wish, uh, you know, you, you are a little more confident because I, I can tell that you want it, but you're just not all there. So not to be disrespectful yeah. to that person, but they just can't grasp some of the very simple concepts. Yeah. Communication is key there because I think, uh, one of the things that would really be hard with that job is the amount of hours of like, Hey, at 6 PM when everybody's off work is when they want to communicate with you and Saturday and Sunday when they don't work is when they want to communicate to you. So you almost don't have nights and weekends at that point, but it's important that you at least get back to folks. For sure. And you know, there's different phases of your career. You know, if you're going to be a new agent who wants to get into it, you got to really accept the fact that they're, you know, drinking beers with your friends, if that's what you're into, or, you know, kind of being MIA is not acceptable. And not only is it not acceptable, but your Fridays and Saturdays are going to be consumed with showings. So you've got to really just want that and commit to it. But there's also an incredible lifestyle associated with it. Not having really a formal boss in a lot of situations and having autonomy is worth its weight in gold. And to be able to take off a week or two here and there and not really have you know anyone breathing down your neck about vacation days is really nice. Of course, you have some other things you have to worry about like insurances and nothing is paid for. You have to pay to be an agent, which is kind of funny. It's an interesting premise. So if you're just getting out of college like myself, when I did that about seven years ago, it was uh, very interesting because I had zero money and I had to drive Uber over the weekend in conjunction to everything else to get it going. But it is it really tests if you want, want it or not. And it is a struggle to start. And it is not as glamorous nor as sexy as Selling Sunset or any of the other very fun TV shows may make it out to look like. I don't know. For our listeners that are listening, you need to go check out the YouTube because you kind of look like Ryan Seacrest. You got the vibe going. I'm digging it. You know what? I appreciate that. I don't know if I'm as cool as him, but we'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you, you were a successful agent. You knew you wanted to be in this business and now you move over into more of on the commercial side and a business development agent for Lone Star, I'll call it. Um, you mentioned a couple words at the beginning that I just want to get some definitions on for our listeners out there in case they've never heard it before. So you mentioned like one of your roles is to make sure the capital stack is full and that the investors tranches are full and things like that. Can you first tell us like, what is a capital stack? If that's a new word for us? Yeah. 
Absolutely. And thank you so much. And sometimes I, I throw out jargon thinking that everyone knows it, but I really appreciate you reminding me also as a podcast host to really break things down in the most simplest forms. So you're doing an awesome job, much better than myself. You've clearly had way more practice than me. Um, with that said, capital stack. So if we're going to raise a deal, let's say we're buying a $20 million deal and there's with this market right now, there's probably going to be $10 million of debt and about $10 million of equity. So there's times where we've got a partner who might be doing a tax deferred 1031 exchange, or perhaps another partner who's got a client who has $6 million that they're looking to place into a deal. So what would happen is, let's say if we get a commitment from someone who wanted to give six of the $10 million. So there's a $10 million equity tranche. So a partner would take up maybe six million dollars there and then it would be my job to fill out and make sure that the other four million dollars of the capital stack is filled up to make sure we have the funds to close the deal at close of escrow so we would put six million dollars in there for that tranche and then there might be several other tranches in there uh, for monies put in to fill up the deal to make sure it's fully funded and capitalized for the improvements to the property so there could be a scenario in which we raise from our friends and family or network, which we call at our firm, retail investors. Uh, we may have a retail investor tranche of $3 million, and then you guys might bring $6 million, and then there's a million dollars left over that another capital partner may fill up that slug for. So there could be kind of three total partners on the deal, your big investor, our friends and families, which is $3 million that could comprise of 20 investors potentially. And then of course, the final individual who may have six investors to fill up that final $1 million. Does that make sense? Perfect. Yeah. And at Lone Star, you own all of that capital stack and making sure that you get all of that. Is that kind of your role and responsibility there? Yes. Yeah, so it is my obligation and our obligation and duty to make sure at Lone Star Capital, not just me specifically, but the other team members and myself on the investor relations team, which includes, of course, the big man, Rob Beardsley, and then also uh, the great and lovely and incredibly uh talented Dasha Beardsley, who's Rob's sister, who's the director of investor relations to make sure that everyone goes through the process. Once they're on board, I pass them off to her. And then she also does a lot of the onboarding process with some of her partners when they come onto the deal. Um, but it is our role to make sure, to your point, that all the money is in there because it's a two-way street in these partnerships, especially for syndications. And there's a lot of trust associated because if there's $10 million that needs to come into a deal, a couple things need to occur. But you know, and some of those things are making sure that we hit our obligations, the other partners hit it, and then you can hit it as well. And what's kind of been happening recently is we've almost had to overshoot the target due to the fact that we know some partners very likely in this environment when raising capital is not as easy could in fact fall short. So, you know, if there's a smaller deal where it's just a $10 million raise, and it's funny, that feels small considering what we've been doing recently, as you're well aware of. Um, but if there's a $10 million raise that we have to do, um, that would actually be relatively easy if there was only three partners. But sometimes there are situations where it's a bigger raise and we need to do, you know, 10 partners or f maybe even 15 if the, the raise is $50 million, right? Um, or maybe not 15, call it 12. But of that 12 partners, some people like you guys have been able to overshoot the target and actually under promise no deliver. And some people have not been able to hit their capital bucket, their tranche, um, which makes it a very interesting sliding scale for us because we need to have constant communication with our partners just to make sure that, you know, if they commit to a certain 
uh, number that they hit it. And if they don't hit it or if they're over it, who's coming short, who's uh, above their goal. So it's kind of a guessing game. And uh, it seems as if all the drama always happens the last two weeks, but that's what keeps us on our toes and, and keeps the game fun and interesting. Yeah. I'm glad you explained all that too, because one of the things that I talked to with investors about is like when you're taking down a hundred million dollar deal, for instance, it's never just one person that's doing it. It's never even just one team that's doing it. There are always multiple parties, whether they be property managers outsourced as a third party, finance teams, capital partners, people, it, the whole thing about commercial real estate is it's a team sport. And some people like just can't grasp that. Wait a minute. There's just not one team that does all of this. No, it's a, it's a huge moving piece that you're trying to move. And, and I want to piggyback off that more because that's so well said. And just the, the level of moving parts in a transaction, especially a real estate syndication of, you know, $110 million deal, which we're raising for currently, it's not just, Oh, well, here's the deals. It's like, Oh, well then you have, you have your lenders, you have the brokers, you have the title people, you have the capital partners, you have Lone Star Capital, our property management team, what's the CapEx plan, vendors for that. And then now we're going to throw on the investors, not just our investors, but, you know, answering some of our partners, investors questions, and then making sure that our, you know, if there's a bigger equity check in there has all their questions answered. So there's so many moving parts. And that's why when you do get into deals of that scale, it's important to work with a sponsor like us, or just a well oiled machine, you can actually deliver on the deal. And then not only do you have to deliver on the deal, uh, you have to make sure all the capital's there, uh, all the equity is raised, but then on top of that, then you have to operate the deal as well. So it's not just that you get the deal done, that's kind of when my work stops and I can kind of move on to the next, um, but then there's the whole property management side and the operations and the asset management of the deal, which then we're married to the deal for maybe another three to six years, depending upon the duration of the whole so let's use that to uh, segment this down to at Lone Star, you all specifically focus on the Lone Star State, Texas. Um, and I think that would help make a lot of those moving pieces a little bit easier. Property management, handyman, maintenance, lenders, all that kind of stuff. Talk to us a little bit about like, why are you all focused solely on Texas and maybe help us understand, does that help you smooth out some of your operations on the back end? That's an incredible question. And I think if I was an investor or a capital raising person uh, or a fund manager, uh, a JV equity check writer, uh, family office, I would want to have my eggs in several baskets. buckets. Yeah, baskets, bucket. I didn't want to say it wrong again, but Starts if I was an investor or, or a check writer or a capital partner, I would want to have my monies spread out through several markets. But if I'm working with a sponsor like Lone Star Capital, what I would really want to have is to make sure that the partner is hyper niche and focused into their submarket. Because what's going to happen is if you're just a sponsor like us and you're buying a deal in Colorado, a deal in Minnesota, a deal in Nashville, a deal in South Beach, and then a deal in Texas, you don't really know what a deal, good deal looks like. You're kind of spraying and praying. And that's fine if you're on the equity side, if you're working with partners who are only looking to buy, you know, call it in a... Uh, a, a 60 mile radius, right? But for someone like us, we know exactly what the best deals look like because we underwrite everything. We know what rents should look like. And then also we get economies of scale benefits. So for instance, we've just bought a deal that's a little bit smaller than we look to buy, but now due to the fact that it literally borders and has the same wall, we've got a couple of these situations. We can share payroll and efficiencies where we can actually shave down a lot of costs. And then also we can feel a lot better about rent 
projections. And then we'll also get the benefit of the doubt. We don't knowing, you know, when brokers call it the JL, the new marks and North marks of the world come to us and they're looking at us versus a different sponsor they haven't worked with. Well, they know that Lone Star Capital, they can do a quick Google search and look through a track record and see clearly that we have over $350 million of assets under management. That is going to give us the benefit of the doubt where we may not have to pay the highest price because we're the best buyer due to our uh, portfolio size. So, you know, being really niche in only a couple places and we're only buying in Houston, San Antonio, and Dallas uh, allows for us to understand really what a good deal looks like, the do's, the don'ts, but then also um, when we're really focused in a couple of areas, we also get the benefits of knowing how to work with the city and maneuvering certain things to make it, make it work. And we have relationships with people. So not only brokers, but city people. So it's all really cohesive in that regard to make sure that we can deliver the best value to our clients. Um, you know, you're going to get spread thin very quickly if you're buying all over the place. But if you can look, as I said, just in one area, you'll get an immense level of benefits and you'll know what a good deal looks like. Plus, you can kind of get branding and consistency and your investors are going to know uh, what they're going to expect out of your deals due to, you know, the deals coming into the same geographical location. This isn't something that you handle directly, so I don't expect you to know the answer to this. But do you know how many deals or multifamily apartment complexes are in Dallas, Houston, San Antonio off the top of your head? I do not specifically know, but I know it's a lot. And I'll say this. Houston is huge. I think people don't realize how big Houston actually is. And huge. I saw some sort of reel when I was scrolling through Instagram. I'm watching a little too much of it these days. I know everyone else is too. Uh, but with that said, <laughs> uh, I saw something saying that Houston is like a top three city people are moving into and it's bigger than Dallas. And then Dallas is growing. But San Antonio compared relative to those three is actually a lot smaller than the uh, other you know cities and it's a little more affordable, which is exciting and there's less turnover there. So uh, I know that's not the question, but uh, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I do know Houston is huge. Dallas DFW is massive, and then San Antonio uh, is not massive yet, but with people kind of defecting, deflecting or, and uh, leaving uh, Austin, it's definitely a area that we're really excited about just due to the affordability nature, the lifestyle play, uh, and also the lack of weather risk. Yeah, no, I think uh, that was a hard question to answer off the top of your head, so I didn't expect you to know that. But what I was trying to get with that is, well, first of all, Houston is now the third largest city in our country, New York, L.A., and then Houston. It just overtook Chicago. So, yes, it is massive. Um, but I would assume that, you know, over the past five years and over the next 20 years, you're going to see the same properties over and over and over again. And I think to your point about being hyper niche and focused on those three markets, you're going to say, hey, this deal traded for this back then to this borrower. It had this lender. It had this operator, et cetera, and be able to know those deals a little bit better than someone like us who's going to look at that deal for the first time and say, okay, let me try to get some history and context and things like that. So the compounding nature of what well, you're doing, I think, will play out for the long run. I agree. And also what allows us to do is audit ourselves. So not only do we see some redundant deals that go through, oh, that deal did this, that deal did that. Also, it allows us to check ourselves to say, hey, why did we pass on that deal before? Did they make money on it when they're going full cycle or did they not? 
oh wow, we actually made a great decision for not buying it. We were actually right for this. Or you know what, we really missed the mark on this deal. Our projections were off and here's why. Or maybe they did really well because the market bailed them out. Or maybe, hey, they bought a really bad deal, but how good of a sponsor are they where they could actually make money in that deal? We should probably talk to them to see what's going on and strategize and trade notes. So to your point, uh, having continuity in a market is really crucial. Yep, yep. In your role over there, are you working with any institutional quality investors? And what I will say as an institutional quality investor is a company or operator that can place roughly $5 million of capital per check. Yeah, absolutely. So I am in conversations. If there's ever an equity conversation, I'm brought into it. Now with stuff or with, with equity conversations sub uh, $5 million, typically speaking, that's what I handle. And anything north of that, usually Rob is kind of running the whole process, but is grooming me to handle everything. So I will be Rob Beardsley to or light, I should say, cause I'll never outshine the master. He's, he's brilliant, but I'll be, you know, his uh, right hand person to assist him through the whole process. But funny, you should actually mention that I was just in uh, Nashville uh, for an awesome BizNow event where I was meeting big co-GP and institutional and private equity and family office uh, folks who are representatives who came out there to kind of meet sponsors like us, whom, you know, someone said, hey, we, we can't write checks that are less than $20 million. And there's some people that are in that five to $10 million sweet spot. And there's some that are kind of 10 to 30. So kind of all in that range. Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you would like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. Gotcha. Well, the reason why I was asking that is I, I'm always interested in how big money is thinking about the current environment today. So going into 2024, which is an election year with lots of real estate um, debt set to expire, how are they looking at deals now? How has that shifted over the past couple of years? Just talk to us about what you're hearing in that space right now. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting question, what institutional money is doing, because these people are the folks who are really high level, whether it be, you know, Ivy League educated people, um, you know, third to fourth generation real estate families, if they're family offices, um, just generally bright people that are, you know, likely getting great information from the Goldman Sachs and the Black Rocks of the world. So you really are getting some incredible information when you do speak with them. And with that said, they're still actively buying right now that are you know pretty optimistic. However, what has changed for sure is the metrics that they're looking for. So one thing that they're looking for is you know a more optimistic IRR with conservative numbers, which kind of is code for we're really not buying, but if there's a unicorn out there, you know who wouldn't buy a unicorn if it goes for sale? Um, so the numbers are a little bit more strict. Uh, than before. A lot of them are offering um, PREF capital, preferred return, which is basically just a set rate of return uh, on a deal with little less upside, but more certainty in their opinion on the return of their money. Um, but generally speaking, I think people are still looking at deals and underwriting because they have to, 
but they're not as aggressive right now. But I do think people are very optimistic about what's going on uh, as the year unfolds and as 2024 goes. To your point that you just mentioned, of course, with a lot of debt coming due, uh, there's going to be situations where they uh, you know, are going to want to buy because numbers come up. And I'm sure some of them are going to be sellers and going to be in a situation if they're not funded correctly where they've got to you know, liquidate or maybe they just want to move on from a property and kind of cut their losses and get on to the next deal. So there should be some more deal flow coming up. But I would say generally speaking with the institutional, you know, five to $10 million plus numbers, they're still looking out there, but they're a little bit more rigid with their returns. And if anything is, you know, probably a coin flip, they're probably going to say no before they say yes right now. Gotcha. Gotcha. You mentioned, um, pref equity and, and, um, taking a more preferred part of the capital stack. How are you seeing that change right now? Like, are you all structuring your deals now more to offer a bigger pref to limit downside or limit upside, but protect from the downside? Like, what does that look like in your offerings in your business? Yeah, it's a great question. So at Lone Star Capital, we've not once ever done, um, have taken preferred return equity into our deals. Uh, so that's not saying we would never do that. It's all circumstantial. And there's actually some deals, if you really believe in it, you could actually offer up, um, you know, call it a 11% preferred return, whatever it may be. And then you'd actually be in receipt of all the upside after that 11%. So much like kind of doing bridge debt or floating rate debt is, you know, seem to be risky. This is also a little more risky, but if you're really a believer in a deal, there are circumstantial situations where taking the preferred return from, you know, the, the prep or the be hard or participating, uh, it may actually be advantageous for one to pursue that route, depending upon the opportunity and the deal that you get, just because you do get the upside long term, and you may only have one or two partners you have to deal with for that capital stack, as you mentioned earlier, um, to simplify this, uh, the 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 process. Gotcha, gotcha. And then, what about on the debt side? Like, what are you seeing right now? How are how are things changing in the past six months? And I don't know, maybe give us a prediction since we're going to be on the internet forever and no one will ever pull this up and rub it in your face if you're wrong. Um, we're right, and I hope everyone... Two years. I hope everyone holds this against me. I'm kidding. Uh, so as far as projections or as far as debt right now, what, what's going on is obviously Treasury is running up pretty high right now. So I would guess that Treasury doesn't have that much more to raise. It could definitely go up a little bit higher, but these are you know a lot higher than what we've seen for a while. Um, I think debt is going to stay higher, and I've thought this for a while. I thought debt's going to stay higher for longer. Um, I thought rates should have never gotten as low from an interest rate perspective when they really peaked down during the middle of COVID. Uh, I thought that was just going to kind of create a artificial situation that's going to be hard to unwind. And here we are now, where we really have to reel it back in. So you know, maybe they should have listened to me, but obviously Jerome Powell is a, a better uh, economist than myself. Uh, but Debt has really been interesting in the commercial world because it is a debt-based business. This is all about that. And with debt being where it is right now, it makes raising equity uh, more important than ever because you're going to have to raise probably about 20% more uh, equity to buy the same deal now as you were before. But also with debt coming higher, evaluations and pricing is coming down a bit. So there is a nice little match right now, but with, with that being where it is right now, it's really affected the market because as I said, uh, 
you got to raise more money for the deals. And also investors are looking at deals like, wait, this deal is a lower IRR than what I saw before. And the leverage is lower. It's like, well, yeah, because we can't make deals make sense right now. So with that said, a lot of investors are having to stomach the fact that there's less leverage and that also will lower the return potentially based upon uh, the levered, uh, our, uh, levered IRR. So it really is changing there. So investors have to get educated as to what that looks like moving forward and for the foreseeable future. And then, as I said, prediction, I think that debt will stay higher for longer than people anticipate, but will get cut as every single time there's an election, there is a rate cut. So I don't know when in 2024 it's going to come, but it is on the other end of that. But I do think it'll stay higher for longer. Gotcha. The whole uh, Chamath Papatia explanation. He, he has a big saying yes. he's been saying for like two years that, that rates are going to be higher for longer than anyone ever expected. And it's going to be painful. I tend to agree. But and also here's the thing as well. I hope I'm wrong because then we could buy more deals and then the economy will hum again. But at the same time, I'd rather be pessimistic and prepare for the fact that it's not going to drop anytime soon as a smarter hedge. Yep. Got it. Well, Craig, I want to transition us now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's giving you a paradigm shift? My favorite book definitely is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I know it's cliche, but it really should be the foundation of anyone who wants to get wealthy and wants to break out of the nine to five world and wants to be an entrepreneur. There's ways to do it and you can start with your W2 income, turn it into passive income and reduce your liabilities. Unfortunately, I live in a house. I do own a house. Sorry, Robert Kiyosaki and my AC is not working right now. So that might be a liability and a fix that I don't like. And unfortunately, I know I'm not following his principles. I do have a car payment too, but my Lone Star Capital Investments pay for it. Um, so that is offset ever so slightly, which I'm very proud of. Uh, but that book is so crucial and I will turn this house into an asset soon when I buy my next house. So, Did you read that in fifth grade? What's that? Did you read that in fifth grade? You seem like a guy that read that really. No, early. I did not read that in fifth grade. I actually read that about two years ago and I should have read it sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our second one is I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits or that you do every day? It's funny you should say that because, and this is unprompted. This is a really good podcast. Um, for those, it is going to be very difficult to read, but I have a habit tracker right here. Nice. So oh. my friends and I have kind of created, it's called a level up club, but my habits every single day, hundred pushups, hundred sit-ups, uh, meditate, cardio. I try to get weights every day, but cardio is a must every single day. Uh, and then I'm not good at this right now, but inbox zero. I really need to work on that. Gratitude journal. Um, and then cold plunge seam sauna. So I really try to look at that every single day. I have to check it. I've been very good about cardio and very good about my hundred pushups and sit-ups. Some other things I really need to work on, but every single day I don't check it. I have to remind myself that, oh, you're, you're falling short on that obligation. So I'm actually very adamant on that right now. I've been incredibly focused this summer. So um, body and mind, keeping those intact is really crucial, which I know you and your partner, Chris, uh, are very keen on, which is awesome. So it's, it's cool being like-minded in that regard. Yeah, um, I did 100 push-ups for three months in a row and, dude, jacked like immediately three months later i just looked so much stronger are you seeing the similar results you're 
your shoulders start getting built in, your chest starts getting built in, your back, and then your arms also start filling out as well. And I just think it's it's something you can do every single day. It's really not stressful on your body. So I can't think enough of that. And then, so yeah, it's just, it's just a must. It's almost like I don't feel good about myself right now. Uh, and we'll see how long I stay in this mind space if I don't fulfill that obligation. 100%. And it doesn't have to be all at once. Like I would do mine anytime I go to use the bathroom, do two push-ups on the way there. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And it's funny. I remember I was really good at doing push-ups and then I stopped doing them for whatever reason for like two years. I don't know why. And I got back and this is such a funny conversation talking about push-ups. Who would have thought? But, and then I got back into it and to your point, I could barely get 50 in a day. Like I had to do, if I just got five and just get five and walk around, you know, the indoor track uh, at my gym, just do whatever you can, just keep it moving and then try to get more done. Now I can crank four sets of 25, no problem. It's quick. So little Arnold Schwarzenegger in the making over there. Our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, I'm very fortunate to have great parents. So my dad and mom have always been, you know, putting in and programming very, very useful and uh, insightful nuggets that they've said my whole life. And then now I'm starting to kind of embody them. And I feel myself becoming my dad more and more each day, which is kind of funny. Uh, so, but I think the biggest thing my dad had always said is work really hard when you're young because it will pay off. Uh, and I know that's a little bit not specific, but I think we hear that, but to actually implement it was something I'm really grateful of because I, I, I think we actually discussed this as well offline on the phone once, but kind of some of the people that you knew were like, hey, I want to get to where you're at right now. It's like, well, it all started about a decade ago, right? So with that said, I kind of dedicated four to five years of my life right after college to really not making any money or not, well, not making any money, but being more entrepreneurial, not taking the kind of the shortcut to wealth, and then also sacrificing a lot of fun experiences, driving Uber on the weekend to kind of get where I wanted to go career-wise. So really kind of paying it forward. And, and it's funny, in the grand scheme of things, if we're lucky enough to live, I always say 75 years, but if we can actually live 100 years, if you think about just giving up five years of your life for a life of you know success and abundance and being able to be more autonomous, that's the easiest price you can ever pay. So working hard when you're young is easily the smartest thing one could do. Amen. I was having this conversation with Jennifer last night around like so many people are like, oh, well, you're lucky this position, that position, whatever you want to say. And I'm like, yeah, but they don't see how many Saturdays in my 20s that I gave up like the entire day, which also meant that Friday night I had to give up. And so uh, those Fridays through Sundays when you're young will pay off if you just point that ship in the right direction during that time. I couldn't agree more. And I, I feel really fortunate where I'm in the place where I can kind of play offense. And, you know, I, I my parents were kind enough to cover my college expenses. So I had no debt graduating. So and, you know, I'm very sensitive to some people's situations where they're, you know, not as lucky in in that realm but i feel really grateful to be where i am and to your point i uh you know a lot of weekend sacrifice working saturdays and sundays open houses calling and you know your friday night consists of getting ready for your weekend but that's just part of the journey and I wouldn't live it any other way. And now I can kind of do what I want on weekends now. So it's so weird. I have a more formal schedule. I have my weekends. Now. I, I almost don't know what to do with my time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, our fourth one is what are you most proud of in your life? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I think 
the most thing, what I'm most proud of is I really do feel that I'm actually maximizing my potential, which is something that I think is really rare. We're all born with, you know, a blank slate and some of us are born, you know, on third base. Some of us are born really, really lucky. I, I do think I was born on third base with my parents and, you know, graduating college debt-free, as I mentioned. I don't take that for granted by any means. Um, but I fortunately was born in, in a really great circumstance. And then I also... Uh, I just feel like I'm maximizing my potential because I was born in a good situation and then I've taken the cards that I had dealt and I've done, I think, pretty, pretty well. So I'm just really grateful for where I'm at in life right now. So I would say that's what I'm most proud of is maximizing my potential and being exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. I'm really impatient and I have big, big dreams and ambitions. Um, and, you know, dreams are one thing, but executing is another. So sometimes I get so impatient about wanting everything to be done right away. That's probably the ADD nature to who I am. But, you know, realizing that I'm exactly where I should be uh, makes me feel really good and proud. So, yeah, I love it. Our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Such an awesome question. You know, I, I'm going to have to say George Washington. Why? I don't know if you've ever gotten that one, but I'm going to go with George Washington. Why? Well, founder, leader, general, you name it, it was him, the founder of the country. I, I think uh, he would be an interesting person to speak with. I would love to see his teeth. And also, like, I don't know if you've ever, this is so funny, this is so random, but I don't know if you've ever seen the show Game of Thrones, but anytime I watch stuff of that vintage or people back in the day, it's like, my first thought is like, okay, how bad was everyone's teeth? Like, what do they smell like? Like, what were these, like, living conditions and environments actually like? Was it pretty bad? So... I would just be curious to know like what the whole aura and essence would be like. And then obviously he's uh, the founder. So we'd love to uh, connect with him on that and clearly a really brave guy. And apparently he was really tall for his era as well. So be curious to know how tall he was. It just many things would, it would definitely spark some curiosity with me. Yeah. I think it was six two, which doesn't sound too tall today, but uh, was a giant back then. Um, And yeah, I more, more commonly, uh, He's, he's more common as an answer to that question than you would think. And so what, what are, I guess I'm going to throw it back to you now. What is the most redundant answer and who do you choose? Elon Musk is by far the number one answer that's given. Um, yeah. I've got, I've got a lot of people. I would say my parents would be one of them. Um, fortunately, they're still around, but uh, there will be a time where they won't be. And my mom and I, every time I go visit her, we, we go get ice cream where she lives. Um, that's kind of one of our Very little sweet. things. And then I've got a couple of things like Abraham Lincoln, not only to lead through the Civil War, but to surround yourself with rivals, I think is a very interesting conversation to have. Um, Obama is one to go from where he was to where he is, regardless of politics. Like that's a pretty hell of an yeah. interesting story. Uh, you have MLK, to it. Yep. MLK is another one because again, like thrown into a situation crisis. And then he said, Hey, we're going to do this plan that like almost everyone disagreed with. And he was flexible with this plan along. So it's people like that. I I'm always looking for who was in a tough situation and was a leader through that situation and then changed what they were doing based off of the situation to get an outcome. Like those are the things I'm interested in. Yeah. 
I have another couple for you because we threw a lot of good names out there. Joe Rogan would be incredibly compelling. Very as well. interesting. Uh, Very I think, interesting. I think, if, yeah, he would be up there. Patrick Bet David would be interesting. Also, not to get political, but I think Donald Trump would be hilarious to have ice cream with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Craig, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and learn more about you or Lone Star Capital, where is the best place we could point them? Yeah, so you can reach me at, at Craig, C-R-A-I-G, at L-S-C-R-E dot com. Once again, Craig, C-R-A-I-G, at L-S-C-R-E dot com for any questions. Um, then we also have a podcast as well, um, the Capital Spotlight sh- uh, Podcast. So that's Rob and I if you want to get uh, a deep dive and look into Rob's life and kind of the way he thinks paired with my commentary. Uh, you can also find us there to kind of get more familiar with us. Finally, though, I want to congratulate you because I hadn't texted you yet. Congrats on getting engaged. Thank you. Thank you. That's not where you can find Craig, but I appreciate the compliment. I appreciate yeah, well, it. I had, I had to throw it out there and congratulate you and give you your flowers there. So there you go. There you go. Well, Craig, fantastic for coming on the show. Thank you. Um, we will leave all those in the show notes and then thanks for coming on. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.